Your customers are how you find out if your solutions that very likely, honestly, came from your engineers mm. uh, actually work with work. When I say work means they'll buy it. They can figure out how to use it. That's what we mean. So it's subtle. It's more subtle. So a lot of overly simplistic things people think, you know, oh, you just go out your customers and you develop it with them and just it doesn't work. And this is why it doesn't work. How's it, guys? So today we're going to talk about tech and product development specifically. So the question for today is as follows. How do today's most successful tech companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, and Tesla design, develop, and deploy the products that have earned the love of literally billions of people around the world? If you could know what these kind of successful approaches are when it comes to building and designing uh, successful tech products, if you knew what these kind of secrets were uh, or what they do practically on a day-to-day basis to build these incredible products, what would it mean for your business? So today we are joined by Marty Kagan. He is the founder of the Silicon Valley Product Group, and he has written two books. One's called Empowered. Uh, and the other one is called Inspired, which is all around how to create tech products that customers really love. It's got like some ridiculous amount of five-star reviews on Amazon. Um, and so we're going to be talking about all things software development, product marketing, user experience, design, software testing, engineering management, and general management, etc. cetera. Uh, Marty is just a, a gold mine of information about this space, and he consults to the likes of Google's engineering teams as a case in point. Um, and guys, this is just there's just so much here so i don't want to labor this intro too much uh, but pay careful attention guys where he talks about the role of engineers in a business and how the role of an engineer is fundamentally misunderstood but if you understand it it can truly unlock the next level of growth in your product for your business so without further ado guys enter marty kagan so hello, hello, hello. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. Uh, today I'm joined by yet another incredible talent all the way from uh, the US. Uh, Marty, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So it's Marty Kagan, everybody. Uh, today we're going to talk about all things tech and product. Uh, uh, Marty, you are the author of a very cool book, which I'm going to bring up on screen here, called Empowered, uh, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Products. And uh, you're from the Silicon Valley Product Group. So um, there's so much I want to get into uh, with you today, Marty. Uh, do you want to maybe give us the elevator pitch? Like, who are you? What are you focused on? What lights you up? Uh, anything of the sorts? What do we need to know? Sure. Well, uh, I have been in the tech industry since college. I joined right out of college, and I, I, have, I started as an engineer. I was writing software for uh, HP Labs. This was, was, you would consider it the Google of the day. It was the most consistently innovative company, a great place to work. But um, anyway, I learned how to do products there, technology products, and then I I was very lucky. I was early at Netscape. Uh, Netscape was the original internet company. And then um, I was also the original head of product and design at eBay, which I'm sure you've heard of. And then after eBay, I just um, wanted to, with the industry people, we started Silicon Valley Product Group really as a way to uh, work with startups, work with uh, small companies that had big ideas, but didn't necessarily know how to go about pursuing those ideas. Uh, and we do advising, investing, and uh, uh, writing. I started writing a book, writing right away, actually. Um, and uh, my first book was called Inspired, is called Inspired, How to Create Tech Products Customers Love. And uh, it sort of surprised me by how many people were interested in that. Mm-hmm. I guess my focus is really, has always been, the difference between how the best companies build products and how most company build build products, and that's where um, uh, I was, you know, very lucky to be in a good product company uh, for most of my career. And then, um, but when I went out into the broader world, I realized that most companies are not so fortunate. They they work very differently, and um, and anyway, so. Inspired was around helping share those techniques that great teams use, teams at Google, at Amazon, at Apple, at Netflix, Slack, companies like that. And then um, 
And then I realized there was an even bigger problem out there, which is that a lot of leaders don't know how good companies work, so they don't allow their teams to work the way they need to. And that's really been the focus of my work for the last few years. Uh, and in fact, the book you just mentioned, Empowered, is is coming out in just a few weeks um, that is aimed at leaders. So product, Inspired was really aimed at product teams and Empowered is aimed at product leaders. Cool. I've got them uh, both up on, on screen here. So um, so it's very interesting, your, your background. Um, you know, as a technology group ourselves, very much focused on, on products and so forth, as, a, as I mentioned to you before we went live. Um, I think in many cases, I think, well, I should say maybe go back a step. I think as a community of technology people, we've gotten better at it. You know, if you think about, you mentioned Netscape, the early browser, et cetera. Um, you know, versus the browsers that we use now, Chrome, et cetera, Chrome rather, et cetera, et cetera. I think, you know, as a community of designers, product people, I think we've started to get better at designing great platforms, interfaces, and all that kind of stuff. But still, having said that, in many cases, uh, we get it wrong. Uh, I'd love to get your view, uh, Marty, you know, whether it's inspired or empowered, you can go from here. Uh, but um, but why do we, where, do, where does it go wrong in most cases? So if we've got like a, a startup, you know, here in, in Johannesburg, wherever they might be, Amsterdam, London, et cetera, they're looking to build a tech product. They've got a fantastic idea. They're drinking their own Kool-Aid. What do they need to know about where they're probably going to go wrong? <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. And I should emphasize, and, and by the way, I've been to Johannesburg. I've been to Cape Town. I've been with tech companies all over the world. I love that. Um, one of the things I've really learned is that uh, some people think that, oh, if you're not in Silicon Valley or New York or Seattle, you can't, you know, you just don't have the environment you need to do great products. And it's just so not true. Uh, a lot of the best companies I know in the world are scattered all over the world. Uh, and I will also emphasize, I know terrible companies in San Francisco and New York and Seattle also. So it's not about location at all. Um, I, I would say, though, one of the things that's hard about product is that it's not so much where you can go wrong. It's that almost everything has to go right for it to succeed. So there are so many. And, and I would also argue, plus a nice dose of good luck needs to be there, too. Uh, and so in one sense, it's kind of remarkable how many companies do succeed because there really are so many places that you can go wrong. Um there are, I mean, almost where do you start for the common problems? Uh, when I meet startups, uh, one of the classic problems is the founders, we, we say, don't fall in love with the solution, fall in love with the problem. You, you may have heard that, yes. but it's an old, but it's really true. I find that so often you have founders that have been thinking about a solution for literally years. They're so excited. They finally get a little money or they, they sell something and they've got enough money to start a, a, start a little company. And they put all their blood, sweat, and tears into this one solution. And then customers don't like it. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And well, you know, the sad thing was that they didn't have the skills to know how to go about that right, especially because very often their original, you know, their original purpose was a good one. Mm -hmm. They really were trying to meet some real need. The problem was the first idea that came to mind to them on how to solve it was not actually a winning solution. It's actually very hard to come up, you know, a winning solution is like threading a needle. It needs to be something that customers just love and want to buy and want to own and want to use. Uh, it also needs to be something they can figure out how to use. It also needs to be something that you can technically build with the technology that's available, with the, the team you have, the skill sets, the technology stack, the time. And it also has to be, for most of us, it has to be something that's legal, something that is uh, uh, compliant with local laws. It has to be something that you can afford to market, you can afford to sell, you can afford to pay for, you can monetize. I mean, those are a lot of hoops to jump through to get a solution that works. You know, when you kind of view it through that lens, what can go wrong? Any of those things can go wrong. <laughs> So not much then. 
<laughs> I mean, wonder why 50% of businesses fail. You know what I'm saying? It should be like 90% fail. Just get used to it. Like, I mean, just a funny story from my side. I mean, I, I, there's so much that I, that I, that you said resonates with me, which is, which is fantastic. You know, um, I think also you, you mentioned falling in love with the problem over again. Like I, 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 th- some t- I actually believe now that the problem moves. So when you found a when you found a company, you think, "Cool, I'm going to go and solve this problem." Not in all cases, but in some cases, especially where it's not a problem that you uniquely have, and you're kind of building the solution for you. Uh, but where you think there's a gap in the market, as an example, and you try and you build a business, you solve that problem, but then you realize that actually, you know, the problem isn't there anymore. It's actually a little bit off center. There's a bigger problem over there. It's related, and so your problem starts to move. But here, you've got a product, right? That's that's built to solve one particular use case, which is great for scale. I mean, I had Jeffrey Moore uh, on the show not too long ago, you know, speaking about this whole idea about, you know, crossing the chasm and you got to solve for one use case, et cetera. But if you start to scale, you got to start to solve more and more problems, right? Um, and so to your point, if you don't have the right executional capabilities, the team, the work and capital, the cash flow and all that kind of stuff, it's very likely that you have a very high chance of failure, right? Um, and so uh, this whole, I, I just, I wanted to use that preamble to talk about this idea of getting out of the building because it's another thing that you touched on. You know, do you develop with your customer or do you, de- and do, or do you deliver in isolation? And at what point do you start to do this? So Eric Reese, the lean startup, you know, you document your assumptions, you kind of then figure out and you validate that with, in the case of a marketplace, the end customer and the vendor, whatever the story is for you. Um, but in, inevitably, you know, the idea is that you develop your product with your customer. So don't build it in isolation, et cetera. Uh, what have you learned about the you know, adaptable frameworks for product development? What works, what doesn't work? Do you feel like, you know, Eric Reese and the Lean Startups, a lot of fluff? Like, what do we need to know? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. No, I mean, it's, uh, in fact, The Lean Startup is a very important book I make sure everybody reads. Uh, But it is also true that most people don't understand what he's trying to explain there. They get it. They misunderstand it so frequently. And of course, he didn't come up with those concepts. He he based it on uh, other work that I've also, uh, there's some great early work that was done. Steve Blank, of course, is Mm. where where a lot of that came from and even before that. But um, this is where it gets a little tricky. Uh, and, and stop me if I go into the weeds a little too much here. But the, the fundamentally, there are two truths. You absolutely have to engage with real users and customers in order to figure out a good solution. There's no question. And that's where the get outside of the building comes from. But the other side of it, which is really even a deeper and more profound side, is that you will never get a great solution by listening to your customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a fundamental reason for that, really, too. But um, the, the most basic one is that custom, your customers, your users don't know what's possible. That's what's really special about technology-powered products is what is just now possible is always changing. You probably remember before he died, Steve Jobs loved to hold up his iPhone and say, you can conduct 100 focus groups. You will never get an iPhone. In, in Jeff Bezos' annual shareholder letter, he likes to remind people, just want to remind people not a single person asked for Amazon Prime. Uh, so your customers are not where you find these solutions. Your customers are how you find out if your solutions that very likely, honestly, came from your engineers mm. uh, actually work with 
work. When I say work means they'll buy it, they can figure out how to use it. That's what we mean. So it's subtle, it's more subtle. So a lot of overly simplistic things people think, you know, oh, you just go out your customers and you develop it with them and just it doesn't work. And this is why it doesn't work. Yeah, that's a, a really good thing because we're as a company ourselves, we're we're pivoting into like a whole different space, and we just had like oh, literally now before this podcast, we <laughs> twelve of us in a boardroom like documenting us. We literally threw away the whole previous idea we were going to launch with in the pursuit of like you know something that's truly different and category making. And this actual point that you mentioned came up. Funny enough, literally like like the glasses are still half full here on the table. Um, uh, one of those ideas was, you know, this is so different to everything else out there. How are you going to convince this particular type of vendor to depart with an increase? Like it, for them, it's like, give me free licenses. Okay. No, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not going to do that. But you're like, hang on a second. We're going to give you ownership in this massive, massive thing. So anyway, I'm not giving away too much, but I will later in a, in a consequent episode because we're still kind of refining it. It changes as we go. Um, but the, but the, uh, the kind of point I'm making here is that, you know, it's, it's so aggressive. It's so different. Just like the iPhone was. It's like I, I watched a clip, funnily enough, Marty, of, um, of Steve Bulmer. He was interviewed by the media, and this lady says to him, so Steve, what do you think of the iPhone? Have you seen that? And he goes, well, you know, it doesn't even have a keyboard. I mean, it's not appropriate for business customers. And he was like, you know, $500? $500 for that? Well, let me just tell you, we've got a Windows phone and it's $99. I think I know what our strategy will be. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lessons there for yeah. sure. And in fact, you know, he he was a salesperson, not a product person. Yeah. And uh, you can just look at Microsoft's track record before him under Bill Gates and after him under Satya, and you can see the difference that causes. And I'm not suggesting he's a bad person, but that is not what you want to lead a technology-powered company. And this really gets to the heart of that. Uh, so the other thing I would mention, just because of what you're saying, another really common problem that, I, that really is sad to me is so many startups give up too soon. Mm. They give up too early. They think uh, they've got their idea. And of course, they pursue it. And six months later, they're like, yeah, it doesn't work. We need to pivot. And I'm like, six months, give it a, come on, give me, you know, normally takes years of hard work. And Mm. this is another area where people really misunderstand lean startup. They build an MVP in six months. Six months is incredibly long to do an MVP. We can do an MVP typically in days, if not weeks. So, um, and then that means we can try our idea. We could try 50 versions of our idea in six months. That is not that hard, actually. Mm. But again, now you're saying, now you're pointing out that the team really needs some skills. They need to know how to work like this. And this is where we'll get to the difference between so many successful companies and not successful companies is the successful ones didn't guess right on their first try. It's that they had the skills to uh, converge on a good solution and they didn't give up halfway there. Yeah, it's so true though. There's a saying, just on the last episode, there was a saying, it's like, it takes 15 years to make a quick buck. Or it takes like <laughs> ten years to be an overnight success, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's it's fascinating. I've been doing a lot of research into marketplaces, and I, was, I came across an article on Airbnb's growth hacking uh, on growthhacking.com, um, and it's fascinating how you can if you think about if you go to Airbnb now. It's like, it's just so worlds apart from what they launched with, which was literally a blog post with apartment listings. <laughs> but, you know, they, as they iterated and they went and they like scraped a whole bunch of listings from Craigslist. I don't know if you're familiar with that whole story. And then, you know, it was, it was like a proper hack, which was super smart for them. I mean, ethical or not, very, very smart. So they, they ramped up their supply side of their marketplace very, very quickly. And then they kind of iterated over time and they introduced like, you know, wish lists and all sorts of cool things. Um, but uh, I'm using that story to kind of talk about 
you know, in, in the lean startup as an example, I believe, and I speak under correction here, Marty, uh, but there's this idea of MVP or minimum viable product. So you should launch with your worst, worst product possible and then you improve it over time in collaboration with your customer, right? Um, and yeah, then, that's, not, that's, that's not really, that's the misunderstanding okay, that so great, many people have. Great. Yeah, because launching with the worst product possible doesn't get you anything. What we, uh, other than a really bad response, and then people eventually just give up. Mm -hmm. So you really need to think through what does it mean to be viable. Uh, A viable product can actually, you know, you're looking to sustain a business. So the real, there there are different definitions of MVP that you can use. There's a, um, because Eric Reese's one and the original one are not the same. But the, uh, the point here is that we are trying to test our ideas as fast and quick as possible. And most of the time, we can do that using different kinds of prototypes. In fact, the best thing you can do is think of MVP not as, never as a product which is some half-baked thing that nobody likes, right? And then you're going to somehow, you know, improve it off of something that people hate. That's not helpful. Uh, Think of it instead as something much, much faster we can do, much sooner in days and weeks to see specific risks. So, for example, is this something people would pay for? Is this something they could figure out how to use? Is this something our engineers can build? Is this something our salespeople can sell? or our lawyers will say is okay. That's really what we're trying to do. Uh, so, you, you know, you mentioned MV, uh, sorry, Airbnb, which is a great example, terrific product company. But, you know, they almost went out of business, right, before very early. They came this close mm. to running out of, uh, going out of, running out of money. Um, and they, uh, they really learned this idea that it's very different to figure out a winning solution versus building a winning solution. And they came, uh, the, the idea of a hack, the idea of the hack is good because it lets you see if this is anything people would want. And if it is something they want, then you can build it out and invest the money. In fact, at Airbnb, they like to frame things as, uh, while we're figuring out the product, what I refer to as product discovery, they refer to as building things that don't scale. Mm-hmm. And then once you do figure that out, then you build things that do scale. So they're trying to do that separate. And notice spending six months to build a half-assed product uh, that you want to call an MVP that people hate, that's not either. That's basically way too slow to figure out the right solution. And it's also no, not a product anybody's going to buy. Totally. 100%. Uh, so the the contrary idea to you, what you're think, what you're saying and describing for me is like an exceptional viable product. <laughs> so it's like um, if you imagine two pyramids, right? You got layers in the pyramid. What a MVP idea is is where you just take the top layer and you build that first. You don't think about usability, all the other things in in the pyramid. But with an exceptional viable product, you're kind of cutting the across the layers down from the top of the pyramid, right? So you're getting all the things that you need to get right, right, as part of an EVP. Does that kind of re- resonate with you conceptually? Not really. No? <laughs> the, uh, God, no. I was almost in there, Marty. I'm trying to sell you something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not there. The um, <laughs> the best thing you can do is forget about the concept of MVP because your mind is so corrupted by these misunderstandings. The best thing you can do is think, okay, we're going to create prototypes in order to test our assumption. Once we have tested our assumptions, then we'll build a product. So what really, if you think of MVP as minimum viable prototype, and then the product is product market fit, which is really what you're after, Right, product market fit is something you can really sell and get money for, and really have uh, a business on. So that's where that's the goal. That's the goal. And then the question is, you've got all these assumptions. So I would argue you're off to the good start. You've identified a bunch of assumptions, but now the real question is, you need to test each of those assumptions quickly. Mm. And when I say quickly, it's normally in days. You're not going to do that by doing some slice through that's going to take any slice through anything. Uh, Even more importantly, most of the time we can test those assumptions without using our engineers at all. There's something to think about. 
Most of the time, we can test those assumptions by using designers and the prototypes that designers create. Hmm. So uh, rapid prototyping, what are some of the tools that one can, well, I mean, I suppose we don't even need to be going into the prototype space in theory. In theory, you could just pick up the phone and validate, you know, which is well, called. Well, you can, uh, but that, and that's actually called demand validation. Yeah. But even demand validation, it's hard for them, uh, far, hard for a customer to really uh, know what they're buying if they don't see a prototype. Um, in many cases. So we do normally uh, do a lot of prototyping and demand is one of the most important things. If demand is not there, then what's the point, right? Uh, If they're not interested in that problem being solved. But I'll tell you, the hard part about product is not really demand. That part is easy for us to test and, and make sure that what we build, there will be a market for. The hard part in truth is the demand is there. The problem is they don't like your solution. Hmm. The customers don't like it. One of my favorite product thinkers, you've probably heard of Ben Horowitz. He's yeah. uh, with Mark Andreessen. And Ben likes to say, yeah, that's what's so hard about product is to get people to switch to your product. It's got to be on the order of 10 times better. Mm-hmm. Like Airbnb was on the order of 10 times better than what its alternatives were. Um, Slack on the order of 10 times better than what the alternatives were. Uh, Google search, Apple's iPhone, these are all significantly better. And that's what's hard about product, coming up with something that's that much better, even though demand is not a question. We've always had demand for search. Uh, We've always had demand for a phone. We've always had demand for, uh, you know, something like AWS. But what was hard was coming up with a solution that worked well enough that people would actually switch. And Mm. that's why most of our effort to build a successful product is prototyping the solution. Yeah, I love that. I love that point. Um, So like in a marketplace, as an example, you've got supply and then you've got demand, right? So you always build supply first, right? Because the, the demand will always be there. Is that a way to kind of, and another way to paraphrase and articulate kind of what you're saying? A little bit, maybe. Uh, Mark, I do love marketplaces and we've worked on them since the beginning of them. I mean, eBay was kind of the original uh, large-scale marketplace. but So I love them. But uh, the marketplaces are almost never like that, where you just do supply and then demand will come. Uh, that we, we really have to worry about what's called marketplace health, which is the dynamics between the two. Mm. Uh, it is true that it's usually harder on one side of that marketplace or another, like it might be the demand side, it might be the supply side, whatever's harder, we'll often spend a lot more of our effort there and we can, uh, but we have to kind of bring those up together. Uh, And that's called marketplace development where you are bringing them up because obviously a marketplace that has a ton of supply and no demand, you're going to lose your supply Mm. immediately Yeah, and vice versa. Can you maybe um, double down on marketplace health, maybe, can you can you characterize what you mean by that exactly? Well, it- sure. I mean, there's this applies really in all marketplaces, whether it's a dating site, which it sounds crude, but those are marketplaces, right? A dating site that just has men is not going to be very interesting, right? So you don't think of supply and demand with a marketplace with the dating site. You think of you know potential partners, uh, and so if you if you go to a dating site and there's nobody interesting to date, it's a totally useless marketplace. Uh, jobs is a more typical example. If I'm uh, uh, looking for a job and I go to this cool marketplace that does all this marketing and advertising to me, and then there's no jobs, then I go somewhere else. If I'm an employer and I post my job, but there's nobody looking for a job on this marketplace, is not very useful. I'll go post it somewhere else. So th- these are, uh, or, or Uber, we can talk about job, uh, rides rather. We can talk about places to stay at Airbnb. We need both sides to go. In fact, this is what, in general, Uber is not, I, I don't like to talk about Uber too much because I'm not crazy about their ethics, but, I, but as far as developing local marketplaces, they really set the bar on how to do that well. What do you find, if there was one, what is the secret source to a successful marketplace outside of the obvious, must have supply, must have demand? 
and maybe you could tackle it at a platform level considering you were um, you know heavily involved at product design at eBay I mean what were some of the things that you implemented at a platform level considering we're talking about product that you feel are easy wins for you know marketplace preneurs around the world to be aware of and can implement what do you feel those some of those things could be well I is not easy. In fact, marketplaces are among the hardest kind of products to do well, but I love them because unlike most products, when you get a marketplace that really resonates, gets traction, product market fit, whatever you'd like to call this, you're really uh, hard to displace. There are marketplaces still in place in the world that are far from the best, but they get these network effects that are so valuable. But frankly, marketplaces are very hard products to do well because it's not just one product, it's at least two. Sometimes we even have three-sided marketplaces. And so you actually have to do a great job for more than one and you have to do those at the same time Mm -hmm. so that you can, and then you have to nurture this marketplace. It's almost like a garden. You've got to constantly worry about those marketplace health things. So like now you've got a supply issue. We have to really get better at supply. Now we've got a demand issue. We have to ramp up demand. So they're not easy. Most marketplaces, obviously people love marketplaces because you can really have a great business if you get there. But it is in general, in my experience, harder to get there on a marketplace than it is for conventional products. Okay. Um where what would you suggest are absolute non-negotiables for marketplace businesses for instance do you focus on one country do you niche uh, what are some of those considerations non-negotiables from your perspective yeah it's hard I mean, realize that there are many kinds of marketplaces right there. Uh, you're, you're bringing up a really important difference. We talk about global marketplaces versus local marketplaces. So eBay, for example, is a global marketplace. Etsy is a global marketplace. These, these uh, uh, let you buy and sell from anyone anywhere. However, Airbnb, Uber... Uh, Lyft, those are local marketplaces. So that means that even if Uber has all kinds of drivers in San Francisco, if I'm in Cape Town and there's no drivers, it's a totally useless marketplace to Mm me. So uh, these these are very different kinds of dynamics and different kinds of products. Uh, Of course, the demand side... um, Uh, might be the fact that, okay, well, I travel from San Francisco to Cape Town. That's a good thing. Maybe I at least know that maybe there is this service. But for the most part, once you've just because you've built supply in one part of the world doesn't mean it helps you in the rest of the world. Mm. So these are just some of the dynamics that are different. And, And you can see these are radically kinds of different kinds of businesses. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, your book, um, uh, Empowered, uh, speaks uh, quite um, at length and inspired, by the way, about you know great tech companies, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Facebook rather, Netflix, Tesla, etc. Um, what are some, you mentioned these techniques. Um, are there any techniques that you feel are used by these incredibly you know, successful tech companies that, you know, outside of the, with the areas that we've discussed, that potentially are a little bit unknown, uh, could be ways of working, could be, you know, anything either around like in market validation, whatever the case might be. What are they doing to be so successful? Uh, what do other entrepreneurs not see from your perspective? No, it's a perfect question, really, because that is my, that you just summarize what I'm interested in. And uh, this is what I focus on. I, I'm going to answer that with something that may surprise you, but to me is the single most important difference between all those companies you just mentioned, plus lots more. Spotify is a great example of what I'll describe uh, and the rest. And what I'm about to say, does I can't tell you how many founders I meet that are shocked by this because it's so against what's in their heads. And that is the idea of the role of an actual engineer, the what an engineer does for the company. In most companies, not the good ones, the engineers are viewed as like, yeah, you hire some developers, big deal. In fact, we can, we can even use contractors. 
I know some really inexpensive contractors, or we'll use an agency, or we'll hire Accenture, and they'll build what we tell them to build. And in contrast, in all the other exceptional companies I know, it's a completely different model. In fact, there was a, one of my favorite quotes of Steve Jobs was he would say that we don't hire all these smart people in order to tell them what to do. We hire all these smart people so they can show us what's possible. And fundamentally, this is right at the core of the difference I see. In a not a good company, the founders or the leaders or the stakeholders tell the teams what features they want them to build. In a great company, they don't do that. They give them problems to solve. Hmm. They literally say, look, the problem is our customers won't do this. Or the problem is we can't get the packages delivered to the right place at the right time. Or the problem is our customers are totally confused on this area. Figure it out. Now, that sounds so elemental, but it really is fundamentally different. It's, and it gets down to the role. I mean, fundamentally, it gets down to the role of your people that you hire. Are they there to, to solve problems for, you know, and own those problems? Or are they just there to do your bidding, to build what the founder tells them to build? And I can tell you that's not that way in the best companies. They are literally trying to tap into the brains of their people. Remember what we started with the engineers are the ones that know what's just now possible. The leaders almost never do. Steve Jobs didn't know. He had great product sense. He had great understanding of intuitions about customers. And he was willing to make some big bets, like we talked about earlier, like on a 100% touchscreen device. But the reason the iPhone happened was because they had engineers and designers that were empowered to figure out really hard problems. Mm. And they did. And that's true. If you want to know how is it the Spotify is able to do so well against so many very tough competitors, that's why. Same with these other great companies. Yeah, I want to double down on that, uh, on the Spotify story, because I'm a subscriber. I use that, that platform all the time. And I actually was thinking the other day, I was like, I wonder why they, they made it. Like out, out of all the like iTunes and how, why would they like successful? Maybe let's just tackle that now. And then I'll tell you a story about Steve Jobs that you probably already know. <laughs> but, uh, but what is your view on Spotify here, Marty? Like why have they been successful? I mean, you mentioned problems, et cetera you know, the role of the engineer versus the leaders, et cetera. Like, what is the Spotify story that we don't know? Well, I, I am a fan of Spotify for sure. And a lot of people get confused because they confuse uh, Spotify is kind of known for uh, ways of organizing and their own sort of nomenclature, but they're miss, people miss what's important there. It's not that. What, what Spotify is awesome at is giving engineers autonomy and empowerment, is basically hiring smart people, giving them hard problems, and letting them go after it. That really is, in my opinion, what they're good at. I mean, I first met them more than a decade ago in Stockholm. They, uh, they, they have optimized. In fact, this was among our first discussions I had with them. They have optimized their work environment for engineers to be able to solve hard problems. And that means that when you optimize for one thing, it often comes at the expense of other things. Mm. I'm also a Spotify customer, by the way, like you. And, you know, it's not hard for, especially several years ago, to see consequences of that. Things that were amazing in one sense, but overall weren't so beautiful, weren't so amazing, uh, like subscriptions, for example. And that's the kind of uh, acceptable consequence of really going deep on empowering your engineers. And, uh, and, I, and by the way, I was having the same discussions with teams at Google about the exact same thing. Google also sets the dial for engineers to very high level of empowerment and is willing to pay the price for that in terms of other areas that aren't as optimized. And I, I really think that is the reason, because look, Spotify has been able to hold their own against Apple and mm. Amazon, two of the best product companies in the entire world. 
So uh, that's that earns my respect. That's for sure. Yeah. Totally, totally, totally. That story about talking about empowering your engineers to solve really hard problems. So have you read Steve Jobs, his book, his autobiography? I know mean, there's more than one. but um, why, uh, Isaacson one you're probably talking about. Yeah, that's about, the yeah. one. Uh, but um, there was the story that he basically said to his, uh, you know, his engineers, listen, when they're building the iPod, he said, I want it very, very thin. I want it the smallest, thinnest, razor-thin product imaginable. And so they're like, no problem. And they go away and they come back with what they feel is a prototype. So Steve's there and all the engineers are there and he, and they go, here's the iPod. And he goes, he looks it up and he's like, but there's air in it. And the engineers are like, it's, there is no air. It's impossible. We squeezed every single spare space out of that thing. There is no air in there. And there was a fish tank and he threw the, <laughs> he threw the thing into the fish tank and bubbles came up and he went, you see, air, make it smaller. <laughs> Which was amazing for me because it, it paints this picture which you're, which you're, which we're talking about at the moment around you know the relationship between leadership and then your engineering team. Like I've got a small team, two engineers, um, but nonetheless, as the leader, you want to empower them, and I'd love to get your views. Like as a leader, how do you go about enabling them? You understand, like culturally, or go and fail, and like totally mess this up, or whatever the case is. Because as you said, there are consequences in other areas, especially when you're a smaller company who doesn't have the luxury of a, of a Google. You know, fail forty percent of the time in a startup, <laughs> you're probably not going to make it. But um, but anyway, nonetheless, what are some of the things that uh, leadership or team leaders need to know about empowering engineers to go and solve those really hard problems? Well, I mean, that's that's the classic example. You've got a founder, you've got a couple engineers. Uh, normally, I try to convince them to add a designer into the mix, depending on the kind of product. But that's a typical founding team, which I love. You know, this is sort of my, I love this scenario, and I hope you enjoy as much of it as you can. Um, but uh, there are the two different ways of working. Um, so many of the founders I know, they think in their head that their job is to specify and define the features and the engineers are just there to code. And instead, I try to get them to think, no, you're really a true team together. And the engineers know what's possible. Uh, as a founder, you care about really two things. Is this ultimately going to be valuable enough for people to choose to use or buy? And also, is it viable? Can we build a business on this? But your designer is going to know much more than you do typically about usability. And your engineers are going to know much more than you do typically about what we can build. And so what you want to do is bring that together. It is, you know, I would argue a true startup working the way we're talking about is it's pure form of collaboration mm -hmm. as you're going to find. Uh, it's real collaboration, but it does require... I mean, you you started this conversation by asking what are reasons, you know, that people fail. And uh, arrogance mm. is one of the biggest ones. The founder who thinks he or she knows what the answer is, but you, but he doesn't. I'd say what one of the things that's really made me much better at doing product is learning that most of my ideas are wrong. Uh, it's just the truth. Uh, and uh, the people that are good at finding out which ideas are good and which are bad quickly are the ones that succeed. What are some of the attributes around that? Because, I mean, this kind of comes up all the time. No, you must solve the problem and da da da, da et cetera. It's like even black even in the, and the, all the, as we touched on in the beginning, MVP and then EVP, and then you got product market fit, and then someone will go, no, 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 it's not product market fit, it's problem market fit. And so there's so many different counter arguments for the same thing. <laughs> um, so I'd love to get your, your views on like, how do you know? Like, obviously, there's some basic ones and obvious ones like, well, there's revenue. <laughs> so someone's prepared to pay for it. Uh, but uh, what are some of the other things that you see are great feedback mechanisms and or attributes that indicate that you have problem market fit or product market fit? Like walk us yeah. through what some of those things are. Well, you're right to observe there's all kinds of ridiculous religion out there mm. when it comes to, you know, everybody's got their favorite framework and everybody's got their favorite technique. In my opinion, I try to teach people that none of them are right. None of them. There is no silver bullet. There is no one technique. Any good team needs to be skilled in a broad range of techniques. And fundamentally, 
what you're asking is, uh, how do we know we're getting somewhere? What is our measure? And uh, our measure is real results, not output. So just shipping features is not success. Uh, and that's what people often confuse. They think, well, look, the, the boss told me to build these two features and get them out by the end of the month. I did. I've done my job. No, you haven't done anything. That's just output. The real question is, if the reason you are adding those features is because today, 12% every month, we have this crazy high churn rate. In other words, people try it in our trial, and then they, they say, forget this. Getting that down to a reasonable few percent is probably more important than anything else for that business. And unless they do that, and until they do that, they haven't done anything. And so that's how we measure result. Every business has certain KPIs as the term we use, key mm. performance indicators. Uh, and they're, no, they're not surprises. They're things like revenue. They're things like growth. These are things, ways we can use to measure product market fit. Um, but one way or another, they're real business things. They're not uh, activity. That's what a lot of people that are, don't get this, do they come up with something, uh, a measure that they're, they feel like, but I'm in control of this. I've had teams tell me that we are doing uh, weekly releases. So we're an awesome team. I'm like, no. Uh, yes. Should you do weekly releases or better yet daily constant releases? Yes. But does that make you awesome? No. You know, you've got to actually be doing something that matters in those releases. So unless you're solving real problems for your business or for your customers, you know, you're not, you're not doing much. You're just busy, but you're not doing much. And so every business has these KPIs. It's usually what's talked about with the board. Uh, and this is what good product teams focus on. Absolutely. I want to talk about stakeholder management. I just got some quite a few uh, comments here from social media. This one, Craig Collins on LinkedIn. Uh, says that the point that you're making is so important. Great engineers are the difference between hacked together apps and poorly designed scalable products. Uh, Keith on Facebook, um, he says execution is everything and a lot of patience. So thank you for that, uh, Keith. Uh, but uh, we're talking about stakeholder management here, I guess. And um, I love this thing because I'm a marketing background guy, right? I dig marketing. I create demand pretty much all day uh, and then sell that as well. Um, but you talk about features and benefits, especially in technology products, et cetera. And then I had Christopher Lockett on the show not too long ago, and he's all about category design. You know what I'm saying? So it's not about the features and benefits nerve that they're buying in many cases in the white space that you occupy as a product platform. And so I wanted to ask you in the context of stakeholder management, Marty, uh, if you have a product engineering team and then you've got a product marketing team and then you've got sales, how does that whole engagement become a fluid, effective one as opposed to one where as you said, this feature should not go to market or whatever the case is. There could be a, a miscommunication or you take the wrong thing to market at the wrong time, et cetera. What do we need to know about internal stakeholder management when it comes to the release of either features and benefits and trying to get new customers to adopt a, a, you know, on your product and platform? Okay. Well, there's a lot in there for sure. Mm. For, I mean, there are, of course, many kinds of stakeholders uh, in, a, in a business. Uh, legal is a stakeholder, CEO, the board, uh, sales, marketing. But your question, I think, is getting at the dynamics between product, product marketing, and sales. Mm. And th that's a really super important dynamic, especially if you have direct sales. Uh, you know, if you don't have direct sales, it's a little less, but still... If you do, it's a big one. So uh, there's a lot of um, uh, old thinking out there about that. In fact, there are still companies in the world. I still occasionally run into them that think it's the job of marketing to define products. Uh, hopefully, you know, you guys aren't one of them, but because that's very obsolete. But um, that is not really their job. Now, uh, product when you, you know, I think you said the phrase product engineering. Yes, there is a typical product team, which is often a founder, but it can be a product manager, a designer, and some number of engineers. And they are responsible for defining, designing, delivering the product. Product marketing helps us uh, 
get that product to market. Now, they are a major input to the product, certainly. Uh, For example, they understand the channels. They understand the go-to-market constraints and considerations. And they're also a major output, right? Because they are, if they don't understand what this product is, they can't provide the sales tools. They can't enable the sales force. So there's a very close and, uh, you know, critical relationship with product marketing, which in truth is a little different if it's a consumer product versus a direct sales business product. But still, this principle applies. Um, so the, the, there are many techniques to answer your question. My favorite one is, um, is actually one that Steve Blank has been a big champion of for years. I, I think we both learned them at the same places, but the idea is you don't ask your sales and marketing organization to start selling and marketing something until the product organization has proven They have a product that people want to buy and will be successful with. The main way or one of the main ways we do that is with referenceable customers. Mm. In other words, that initial set of customers that are using the product for real, not in a trial, but for real. They're using it to run their business or their life uh, and they have paid for it for real and they love it so much they're willing to tell others how much they love it. That's a reference customer. Having a set of those reference customers in the same market is one of the powerful ways we define product market fit. But once we get that, then we want to ramp up sales and marketing. Spending a bunch of money on marketing programs and salespeople is usually a huge waste of time and money if you don't have product market fit yet. So we want to make sure we are timing things uh, so that we get the most out of the sales organization. And, and by the way, it's easy to see. It shows up in sales costs, marketing costs, uh, and sales cycle times. Mm. If you don't have uh, referenceable customers by the time you start really actively selling, you're going to see that all through. You'll also see it in unhappy customers. Is it fair to say, Marty, that, you know, I, I've, my mind's kind of jumped back now to where we were before around um, what are the sort of attributes that determine when you are in a particular stage, like product market fit as an example. Would would the reduction in customer acquisition costs indicate that you are there as a case in point? Well, yeah, what you probably have is some sort of benchmark for what you think is viable for your business. Like if we don't get our cost of sales down to here, we don't have a business, something like that. Yeah. And so that's a good example of what I was talking about before, of a real problem to solve. Mm-hmm. You can go to the product team and say, look, currently our cost to acquire customers here, we're, which means we're like burning money. We need to get it here. That's a totally reasonable and good assignment for a product team. Yeah. I want to talk to you about product vision for a second uh, and its relationship to KPIs. So as a a company ourselves, we've, you know, did a whole vision exercise, not like a vision statement, but like a proper 23-year roadmap sort of thing and articulated all the products and the culture and all this kind of stuff. Um, And that's got to translate into product right? And that's kind of where we are as a team. But what is the relationship in your view? Or what advice do you have between a vision, founder vision, whatever the case might be, to setting KPIs around that? What is the relationship between, you know, that sort of dynamic? Well, now you're getting to um, what really are the responsibilities of your leaders when it comes to product. Uh, And that not accidentally is the topic of the new book empowered that is so it starts i mean that literally uh starts with product vision typically well really it starts with company objectives and the purpose Mm. or the mission of like why are you why do you exist as a business but that's easy you know like google says organize the world information that's a mission statement it's not a vision uh that's and it's good. You should, everybody pretty much has one, but the real point is how are you going to do that? And that's where it starts getting interesting. The product vision plays a major role. The product vision typically drives uh, two, two big things. It drives the architecture uh, that you need to support that. And it also drives what's called the team topology, which is how are you going to structure your product teams to deliver that? And then uh, most importantly, that vision uh, and the topology uh, drives the 
product strategy. And product strategy is another one of those big differences between good companies and the rest is they actually have a product strategy, which really helps us know how to get the most out of our teams. And the product strategy is where we come up with those problems to solve. And, um, you know, so we're really getting into heavy things. Now, the product strategy will turn into specific problems to solve and specific measures of success. And those measures of success are where those KPIs are most visible. Every team has a set of business KPIs that they're focused on. And it comes from the product strategy, which was derived from the product vision. Mm. That's probably a lot more than what you wanted to hear, but uh, that's why it takes 400 pages, you know, in this book to kind of describe what leaders are responsible for. Yeah. But you know, this is the thing, right? It's like, this. just to your point. The first thing we discuss is all the things that can potentially go wrong. Right. And so this is one of those. It's like measuring the wrong stuff. And not measuring things at all is another example. Another thing that goes wrong is teams don't even have any product strategy. I'm not exaggerating when I say they don't have product strategy. You know, we were talking about Spotify before and how it sounds like we're both kind of fans of Spotify. But one company that I saw that I knew was destined to not do well is Pandora. Do you remember Pandora? Mm, I know the name. It's another music service, which was actually pre-Spotify, but they really blew it because, uh, and I didn't work with them, but they published how they actually decided what features to add. And that was published in a blog article. And as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, well, I know what's going to happen to this company because this is exactly what you do if you don't have any product skills and you don't have any product strategy. And, and you know, the rest was history, unfortunately. Well, funny thing is, I just Googled uh, Pandora.com <laughs> <laughs> and I put it up on the screen here. Pandora isn't available where you are yet. So I guess <laughs> that's pretty much Well, they basically they they lost, they lost most of their value and they were acquired by Sirius X, XM, if you know them. Uh, yes. Isn't that yeah. Jeep's internal radio thing, satellite radio thing? Yeah. And it's not, I mean, this is not the the ending I think any of them hoped for, right, is the point. Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, just two quick questions, cognizance of time here, Marty. Uh, but um, the question I have for you is, and I have to ask this because I know all the entrepreneurs in the space will be like, Matt, please ask this one. But it has to involve funding, right? So this always comes up and uh, you're the product guy, you know, Silicon Valley Group guy. <laughs> so funding, do you take it? Do you not take it? Can if you boot if you can bootstrap it, do it yourself. Like you know, equity is the most expensive form of fun of, of finance. Blah blah blah. Where does the rubber hit the road here? What what is your point of view? Yeah, well, I so and just to be clear, I am not a venture capitalist. Uh, so the level of investing we do is minor, and it's in the companies we advise. Uh, so I am not a great person to ask. I can tell you that from the product perspective. Uh, the less funding you need to take, the better, which is obvious, right? Uh, but how do you do that? And that is, I do spend a lot of time with teams on how do you how do you do do this so that taking funding can be a good thing, but hopefully you do it not because you need it. That's the point. Mm. And the main way you do that is try to bootstrap yourself at least until the point where you've got where you can show product market fit. If you can do that, if you can bootstrap your business until you get product market fit, you will be able to get more funding than you need or want and you'll be able to have it on the terms that you deserve. Mm. Um, I we all hate absolutely hate the story and I've seen it way too many times where a founder basically gives away their company because they don't know better or they think they have to. And that is the scary truth. I'm petrified of taking funding, but I love that advice. It hasn't been given uh, on the show before. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Marty Kagan, uh, why do you do what you do? Why do you care about all of this stuff? What gets you out of bed in the morning? 
Well, I, I have been super lucky to work on some great products and I just love working with teams. You know, you, you see this, I'm sure on yourselves and you're also the people you talk to. It's, it's really fun to work with passionate founders that really care deeply about something and want to kind of make the world better in their own little way. Mm. And, uh, and, and that's, so that's just, doesn't get any better than that. And really my part, I, we are only five of us in, in Silicon Valley product group, but this is really what we want to do is just help other teams do that. Marty Kagan, you're an absolute legend, dude, a uh, living legend for sure. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Your, uh, your book, obviously empowered and inspired is available on Amazon. Uh, so guys head on over there now. Um, I'm definitely going to pick up a copy because it's super relevant for me, um, as a CEO myself. So Marty, thank you for your time and, uh, we'll see you all again soon. Thanks Marty. Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, you're in a game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.